I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer together. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, the Apostles' Creed and the way that uh, you used uh, some godly people to to draft uh, this very important uh, document over 1,700 years ago. God, we stand with uh, believers through the ages as they... um, as they make their statement of belief. God, we thank you for the word of God. We stand on the word. It is our sure foundation, the foundation that we had a chance to sing about today. And now we ask that your spirit uh, would guide our thoughts, your spirit would guide our our affections and our inclinations this morning as we open uh, the word of God to learn from it, to learn more about you, uh, to be challenged, to be convicted, to be encouraged. We trust you to do a good work here at Christ Fellowship today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Kyle. I want to thank Kyle Veldman for reading uh, from the Apostles' Creed this morning, a document that is uh, roughly over 1,700 years old, a statement that I believe really goes to the core uh, of the Christian faith. Uh, Indeed, it summarizes what we as Christ followers believe. If you would indulge me just for a a minute this morning, I want to uh, talk about Latin just for a second, only for a second. The word creed that we're all familiar with comes from the Latin word credo. The word credo. And the word credo, is it's a really important word. It's one that you can all remember. Credo means, I believe. In fact, as I was seated and as we were worshiping this morning, I got to thinking if God were to ever lead uh, Jereen and I to plant a church in the future, I think that Credo or Credo Fellowship would be a great name for a local church. I believe. And while Christians around the world uh, for hundreds of years have recited the Apostles' Creed as a part of their worship and expression uh, of belief, I think it would be safe to say this morning, we all know this, that not everyone believes the words from the Apostles' Creed. Even those who are unwilling to embrace the words of the Creed, however, must be willing to admit this. They believe something. It doesn't matter what the unbeliever professes. We do know this about every unbeliever and every believer. We all have a system of belief. We all believe something. Therefore, each of us have a creed. Every person, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman at Christ Fellowship has a creed. Every boy, every girl, every man, every woman all around the world, no matter what the language, no matter what culture that individual comes from, each person has a creed. I want to give a few examples of creeds. The first comes from a, a poet by the name of William Ernest Henley, who died in 1903. 
And this would likely represent his creed in part. It's a poem he entitled Invictus. And listen to the presuppositions, listen to the creed of this man. It goes like this. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments that scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So you, you learn about the creed of this individual who, who contemplates life, who contemplates reality, who believes that he and he alone is the master of his fate. He believes that he and he alone is the captain of his soul. That tells you a lot about his worldview. It tells you a lot about his creed. Several years later, in 1933, the Humanist Manifesto, Part 1, was drafted. And while there are several lines from the Humanist Manifesto, I want to read from the first two statements, and they read as follows. Number one, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing, not created. If you're here this morning or you know someone who believes that the universe is self-created, I would argue with you that that is patently absurd. For something to be self-existing, the universe as self-existing. The second statement from the Humanist Manifesto reads as follows. Humanism believes that man is part of nature. And that he has emerged as a result of continuous process. Now, that may not alarm you on the surface of things, but as you look further into this claim, you will see that this is a blatant propositional statement that concerns the theory of evolution. And so, in the Humanist Manifesto, we also see uh, several creeds. We see what the writers of the manifesto believed. Well, the title of the message this morning is Creed, the Folly of Unbelief. And today we will see that there is a, a creed of unbelief, if you will, in the passage before us. And this is a pattern that I believe, the pattern of unbelief is something that every person fights all the way from birth until death. It is a pattern that haunts some people in a most severe way all the way to the grave. It is a pattern, if left unchecked, if the pattern of unbelief is left unchecked, it will ultimately lead to eternal destruction. So with those thoughts in mind, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of John, chapter 12. And we will read together, beginning in verse 33. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. John the Apostle is speaking of Jesus, and he says, He, that is Jesus, said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? 
So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This morning, I want to ask, what... What could be your concern or what are your objections with historical Christianity? What is the tone and the texture of your unbelief? And as I said before, people wrestle with unbelief from from birth all the way to the grave. What is it that prevents you from believing Jesus? What is it that prevents you from trusting Jesus? Here's what we'll find today as we explore this passage in some depth and detail. What you believe matters. What you believe matters. You see this. You go to a park. You go to a restaurant. uh, You spend time with a loved one. And eventually, something will come up that is controversial in nature. And many of you know that there are two things that are off limits when you have your relatives over, right? Politics and religion. Why is that? Because everyone has deeply cherished beliefs about politics and religion. And some people, flat out, especially in our culture, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't want to hear that you believe that the Bible is God's infallible, inerrant, authoritative word that binds the conscience of every person. Or should bind the conscience of every person. The kinds of things that you believe or fail to believe in are of supreme significance. And so I would ask, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about authority? What do you believe about man? That is man slash women and their status as sinners before God. What do you believe about eternity? What do you believe about salvation? On Easter Sunday, my family and I ended up, I'm not sure how, but we ended up in the Walmart parking lot of all places to purchase some some product of some kind. And as Doreen and Nathan were at the checkout stand, I, for some reason, went to the car by myself. Maybe I was tired of Walmart, I'm not sure. And I was I was immediately confronted by a young woman probably 18, 19 years of age. 
And she came up to me, and it was obvious that she was peddling some kind of good, goods, I should say. And she proceeded to tell me that she was with a youth group in town and that they were selling some products that would help them to go to some faraway place to share the message that they believed in. Well, of course, I was interested. I wanted to know what her creed was. What was the creed of her church? What did they believe? And when she told me the name of the organization that she represented, it immediately raised some questions in my mind. I won't bore you with all the details of the conversation, but the final question I asked her was this. And this is the question that I pose to every person that's baptized at Christ Fellowship. Those of you that have been baptized, especially the people last week, are going to know automatically what the question is. If you died today... I said this to this girl, probably scared her a little bit, but I said, if you died today, if you got hit by a Mack truck and you stood before God, why would he allow you into his heaven? It's always a bad sign when you get a long answer. Here's the answer I'm looking for. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's only because of the completed work of Jesus on the cross that I can stand as a person who is ready to be admitted into the gates of heaven. Well, she proceeded to answer this question. The first words out of her mouth were the words Messiah. I thought, well, that's pretty good. Messiah. You need to believe in the Messiah. But when she tacked on all of these other qualifications, you have to do this and you have to do that. I'm I'm looking at my watch going, how long is this going to take? And she finished her answer and I said, It might disturb you if I told you that is not what the Bible teaches. And I I was gracious, I was kind, but I was also forceful in the sense that that is not what Scripture teaches. And here was her response, and I would encourage you to remember this response because it's a response that is meant to disarm people. It's a response that is meant to uh, uh, send the conversation in another direction so that you can depart as friends. And her response went something like this, well, we're going to have to agree to disagree. Pretty gracious, right? My response. Well, actually, no. We're not going to agree to disagree. What you just told me is patently absurd. What you just told me is not in the work in the Word of God. What you just told me smacks of works-based righteousness. And that is absolutely unacceptable to God. Well, it probably doesn't surprise you when I told you. The conversation ended right there. She was... She was out of there. Well, I learned in less than two minutes what this person believed. Remember this. It's not only what you believe that is important. It's what you fail to believe that is important. So, for instance, do you believe that God created all things? Do you believe that God sustains all things by the word of his power? Do you fail to believe That every person born is a sinner, separated from God, without hope and under the wrath of Almighty God. Do you fail to believe that Jesus is the final answer for sin as he pays for sinners on the cross? And so I want to draw your attention to this fact once again, that every person has a creed. Every person has a belief system. You might hear this in the background if you can pull, pull the cover over what I'm trying to say. Every person has a worldview. And in this passage in John chapter 12, 
that we just read from, Jesus confronts the creed of the unbelieving person. And he helps us to see that these unbelievers have a unique creed that unfolds in three movements. And the first is found in verses 33 and 34. It's what I like to call the the propensity of unbelief. The propensity of unbelief. After Jesus, in John chapter 12, verse, verse 32, explains the reality of salvation by explaining to the crowd that soon he will be lifted up. We looked at that two weeks ago. He will be lifted up on the cross and he will draw all people to himself. I need to say, if you weren't here two weeks ago, when he says that he will be lifted up and draw all people to himself, that does not mean that all people will go to heaven. That means this. He means either all without exception or all without distinction. And we know for a fact he cannot mean all without exception. That would lead us to the position of universalism, that every person will be saved. And so what he means when he says, I'll draw all people to myself, he means all kinds of people, all without distinctions. There is no separation between Greek or Jew, nationalities, people all around the world. He'll draw all kinds of people to himself. Notice now, as he unfolds that truth, the response of the crowd. As Jesus just unpacks this amazing reality that he will go to the cross for the sins of the world, instead of resting in Jesus, what does the crowd do? The the crowd repudiates him. Instead of resting in Jesus, they repudiate his claims. Instead of turning to Jesus, they turn from Jesus. Look with me in verses 33 and 34. He said this, that is, that he will be lifted up and draw all people to himself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What I hear in the tone of the crowd reminds me strangely of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Did God really say? And so there's three objections here. One is, we heard that Christ remains forever. How can you say you'll be lifted up? Objection number two, how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And finally, number three, who then is the Son of Man? And the question that surfaced in my mind as I studied this passage is, how could this crowd be so unwilling to believe? They had heard Jesus teach. They have seen him perform miracles. They were firsthand eyewitnesses to the glory of God manifested in Jesus Christ. I want to draw your attention later in the passage. We'll get there in a few minutes, but to verse 37. And this is exactly what we we rose a few minutes ago in Veritas as I alerted the class to this issue. Why is it that they refused to believe and though they had seen Jesus, heard Jesus, experienced Jesus, touched Jesus? Because I know many people in this culture who will say this, Hey, listen, if Jesus were here and he did a miracle, if only Jesus would do a miracle. I've had people say that to me in conversations that, that pertain to evangelism. If Jesus would do a miracle, if Jesus came to Starbucks right now, then I would believe in him. Why didn't they believe? Verse 37 gives us the answer. Though he, that is Jesus, had done so many signs, that is miracles before them, they still did not 
believe in him. I want to take that deeper with you now and, and walk with you and expose the sin of unbelief. There are four things that I want you to see about the sin of unbelief that will, uh, I believe, help you to understand with greater clarity why the crowd and why many people in our age simply refuse to believe Jesus. Number one, our hearts are naturally geared to unbelief. You see, every baby born into this world is not geared to believe in Jesus. That baby is geared to not believe in Jesus. Why? Because we are sinners by nature and choice. Romans chapter 3 verse 18 says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Our hearts are naturally geared to unbelief. And I hope that helps you when you when you attempt to share the gospel of Jesus with your friends. Remember that your friends, remember that your family members that are not walking with Jesus, their hearts are, are naturally inclined to not believe. Notice secondly, that unbelief is rooted in the soil of pride. Unbelief is rooted in the soil of pride. Here's what it says. Unbelief says to God, my way is better. Unbelief says to God, my way is wiser. Unbelief says to God, my way makes more sense. My way makes me feel good. Unbelief says this. See if you remember this. I am the captain of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so unbelief is rooted in this this sinful pride that we are born with. Number three, I want you to see that unbelief now is linked to a hardened heart. Whenever you battle unbelief, you can safely assume that your heart has been deceived and that your heart is growing harder and harder by the day. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 7, listen to these words. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you. For they are not willing to listen to me because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. You see, a hard heart is simply unwilling to listen. A hard heart is stubborn. A hard heart is deceived. And you learn that really quick when you begin to get serious about evangelism. Recognize that when when you engage in the task of evangelism, that is telling people about Jesus, don't be surprised when your friends and family members look at you like you're crazy. Don't be surprised when your friends and family members say to you, as one of my family members once said, that's far too easy. To believe in Jesus and have all my sins forgiven? Some of you know that that family member or brother-in-law who I love dearly was actually baptized here a few years ago. So my brother-in-law went from saying that, that's far too easy, that's, that's ridiculous, to one day the Holy Spirit got a hold of his heart, just like he got a hold of my heart and many of your hearts, and he believed and we believed. Number four, I want you to see that unbelief at the end of the day is a rejection of God. Hebrews 3.12 says this, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. John Piper says it like this, Unbelief is turning away from God and His Son in order to seek satisfaction in other things. Do you see that in our culture? 
Unbelief is a turning away from God and Jesus in order to seek satisfaction in other things. Those things may be good things. Those things may be bad things. Those things, those things may be legal things. They may be illegal things. But at the end of the day, they fail to honor God. Because we're turning away from God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be satisfied in those things. Jeremiah addressed this sin that we know is the sin of idolatry. He said this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the reality is the human heart has a natural propensity to the sin of unbelief. And as I study this passage, I got to thinking over the course of my life and realized that there is a deep sadness that is associated with unbelief. It was over 20 years ago that I served in the first church uh, out of uh, Bible college where I served as a youth pastor. And I got thinking as I studied this passage about some of the young people who have yet to make a profession of faith. Almost 25 years later, there are young people who have heard the gospel, who have seen the gospel in action, who have read the word of God, who have been involved in the local church, and they have seen the people of God worship. They have seen the people of God serve, but they persist in their unbelief. And so there is a great sadness that is associated with unbelief. Perhaps you have a friend. Perhaps your mom or your dad or your aunt or your uncle, someone that you love, continues to battle the sin of unbelief. God offers eternal life in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, yet people continue to persist in their unbelief. So my question for you by way of practical application today is, are you like the crowd? Are you like the crowd in John chapter 12 who had this insane battle with unbelief or as a christian do you do you fail to believe the promises of god if you're like me you'll you'll go through the christian life and sometimes you'll struggle to believe the promises of god that is also unbelief and to get real personal i would ask where do you find yourself resisting god today what promises are you failing to appropriate in your Life. Well, this is the propensity of unbelief. I want you to look at a second area or a second angle that the Lord Jesus addresses, and it's what we would call the prohibition against unbelief. The prohibition against unbelief. Look with me at verse 35. Jesus says to them, that is the crowd, the light is among you. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Well, here we see in the, the prohibition against unbelief, we see two very important imperatives. We see two commands that surface from the lips of Jesus. The first is found in verse 35. He says to the crowd, walk in the light. 
Now, if you're like me and you're in the crowd and the Lord Jesus says, walk in the light, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? Maybe a light bulb, maybe you visualize yourself walking in the light, maybe with some sunglasses. That's not what Jesus is talking about, of course. When he says to walk in the light, he means the word walking concerns your lifestyle. It has to do with how you live your life. And, of course, he says your lifestyle should be a lifestyle that conducts itself in the light. As we consider what it means to walk in the light or live in the light, walking in the light involves three very important things. First, it involves divine direction. Imagine if if you were walking, if you were living in the light, if you were living according to the Word of God, you have divine direction. That is, you know where you're going. That doesn't mean you have all the answers, but you know where you're going. For the Word of God says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I remember as I was thinking about youth group many, many years ago, I took the students, Doreen and I took the students to a, a, a retreat center oh, over in the Wenatchee area, deep in the forest. And the camp director came to me and he said, are you going to do a campfire with the young people tonight? And I was like, duh, like every youth pastor does the campfire with the young people, right? I said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, word to the wise, make sure you have flashlights or you'll never get back. You will never get back. Well, I'm not a big fan of the dark, right? There, I admitted it. Is anyone with me? Make me feel better. Okay, good. A lot of guys. Wow, I like that. Well, make sure you have some flashlights or you're not going to find your way back. And notice Jesus says that to the crowd. The one who walks in the darkness isn't going to find his way back. He's much more brutal, though. He says, you don't know where you're going. You're just going to stumble around. And so walking in the light involves divine direction. You know where you're going. Secondly, walking in the light involves divine affection. That is, you are motivated by the one you love. The psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O Lord. Your law is within my heart. I can guarantee that there, are, there is someone here, probably several people, when they hear those words, they think, yeah, right, Pastor. You're, it, it, it's cool to obey God. That's what the Word of God says. It says, I delight to do your will, O God. Your laws within my heart. And as you grow in Christ, you learn. You learn day by day that, and I say this, this way to the young people, that, that obeying Jesus is cool. Obeying Jesus is fulfilling. Obeying Jesus is... That's what life is all about. And that's what happens when you walk in the light. There's a third thing, however. Walking in the light not only involves divine, uh, divine uh, direction and affection, it also involves divine protection. The psalmist says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. I want to stop there. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that the people who have the most money and the most fun and the most things are the wicked people. His, and I want to show of hands. How many of you have ever thought that and are not too happy with it? It's weird. Why is it that the wicked people have all the, the money and the fun stuff and do all this stuff, right? Listen to what the Word of God says. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. 
I learned this in a very vivid way. And I learned it every time I went to the Republic of Belarus. You look around and you see men and women who are earning from 50 to $100 a month. That's USD. That's American cash. 50 to $100 a month. They're the happiest people I've ever met. Happiest people I've ever met. I was told the first time I went there, be careful when you, when you meet the students in your class, the female students, because you'll think they're wealthy because they come wearing different clothes every day. And the, the girl that said this to me said, pay careful attention, though. They're basically wearing the same outfit, but they just accessorize. It's like, that's pretty smart, actually. But these women and these men are the happiest people I've ever met. And so it's not about money. It's not about success. It's not about the things that we possess. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. That is to say, Jesus calls all of us to walk in the light. Now, by way of contrast, Jesus says, once again, the the one who walks in the darkness, he doesn't know where he's going. The one who walks in the dark has no direction. The desires of his heart are so dictated by the darkness that he will have no assurance of protection. And so Jesus warns of a darkness which will, in his words, overtake you. The darkness will overtake you. So imperative number one, walk in the light. And then look at the next imperative. He says in verse 36, he says, believe in the light. Not only walk in the light, but believe in the light. And this is a word I want to come back again and over and over and over again with you to the the word translated believe in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word pastuo. You'll hear that an awful lot. Pastuo. And it means to think to be true. It means to trust. That is, a person can say, I believe in Jesus, but not trust him. That means the person can say, I believe in Jesus, but not have a personal relationship with God through Christ. Believing in the light, you see, involves three things also. It involves turning from the darkness. That's what the Bible calls repentance. It involves turning from the darkness, but it, by definition, involves turning toward the light. We turn away from the deeds of the darkness. We turn toward the light. And here's the kicker. We trust in Jesus. We are satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. Now, it probably does not come as a surprise when I say the call to believe in Jesus. Not just to believe he exists. Not just to believe in your head that, oh, this is Jesus. But to believe in him and to trust in him. This call to believe is a dominant theme that runs through the pages of the New Testament. Let me read a few of those passages. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John three eighteen. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I remember as a, as a youngster, as a boy, every child learns, learns John 3.16, right? Every child that comes through the, the, the doors of the church. I think I was probably in college 
when I, I realized that I had never really wrestled with John chapter 3, verse 36. It's my firm conviction now that every child should learn John three thirty-six as well. That says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And I want you to see what emerges in that passage is very, very relevant. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That is to say, to believe in Jesus is to obey Jesus. So you say, Pastor, I I believe in him, but I'm not interested in obeying him. Can I be brutally frank with you today? If you're here to say today and say, I believe in him, but I refuse to obey in him, the scriptures say this, you don't believe in him. And we're going to see that illustrated here in a moment. In John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who is sent. John six thirty six. I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. And so we see now that be- believing is the antidote to unbelief. Believing is the antidote to unbelief. One writer says it like this. Belief is not merely an agreement with the facts in the head. It is also an appetite for God in the heart, which fastens on Jesus for satisfaction. Eternal life is not given to people who merely think that Jesus is the Son of God. It is given to people who drink from Jesus as the Son of God. That's this writer's way of saying, it's more than believing in my mind. I must trust in Him for all my needs. He goes on to say that faith is coming to Jesus and drinking the water and eating the food so that our hearts are satisfied in him and in him alone. So in this passage, Jesus issues a prohibition against unbelief. You could say it this way, negatively, that the whole New New Testament itself issues a prohibition against unbelief. This morning, I want to ask, are you walking in the light? Are you believing in the light? Jesus said this. He said this to the crowd. You will, that he will only be with them a little longer. He'll only be with them a little longer. And to apply this today to Christ's fellowship, I will say the clock is ticking for each one of us. Do you hear it? It's ticking for each one of us. With Jesus, I would plead with you. I would urge you, I would beg of you to walk in the light while you have the light. I would plead with you to believe in the light. We've seen the propensity of unbelief. We've seen the prohibition against unbelief. I want to conclude by having you look with me at something that is likely to shock some of you. And that is what I like to call the portrait of unbelief. The portrait of unbelief. There are really two purposes that unfold uh, for the, the reason for unbelief in the Word of God. And again, they may surprise you. First is unbelief fulfills prophecy. Is that a shocker? Unbelief fulfills prophecy. See, Isaiah explains the reason in Isaiah chapter 6 for the unbelief of Israel. He says, God has blinded their eyes. If you look in verse 40, he says, He has blinded their eyes. Insert God. 
And if you're like me, you think, on the face value, you think, that's weird. Isn't that weird? Because Jesus says, I command you to believe, but the Word of God says God blinded their eyes. Moreover, it says he hardened their hearts. John MacArthur helps with this statement. He says, Israel's rejection of Christ was not merely foreseen. It was by God's sovereign design. It was a judgment act on his part. God hardened the hearts of those who refused to believe in Jesus. Why? So they could not believe. You say, wait a minute, something is mixed up here. Why would God call someone to believe when he is the one who hardened their hearts so they couldn't believe? That leads to number two, which I believe answers the question. Number two is that unbelief confirms the depth of rebellion in the human heart. That is to say, unbelief, while it is true that God hardens the heart of the the non-elect person, it is still a personal choice. Let me give you probably the best example in all of Scripture, and that is Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a classic example of a man who had a hard heart to the living God. Let me walk through these passages. Exodus chapter 7, verse 13 says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And so the presupposition here is, apart from God hardening the heart of Pharaoh that we'll see in a moment, Pharaoh already had a hard heart in and of himself. In and of himself, he was refusing to believe God or obey God. Exodus seven fourteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. I'm sure Moses thought, no kidding. He refuses to let the people Go. Exodus 7.22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. When Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8.19. The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Exodus 8.32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. Exodus 9.35. I'm skipping. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go, just as the Lord has spoken through Moses. Listen once again to John MacArthur. He says something that should cause us to to, uh, be prepared to listen. He says, It is a sobering reality that those who persistently harden their hearts against God may find themselves hardened by him. So here's the question. Who hardens the heart of sinners? Man, the sinner, or God? I knew you'd have the answer, Frank. The answer is yes. Once once again, who is it who hardens the heart of the sinner? The sinner or God? Yes. It's not just the sinner, and it's not just God. It is the sinner and God. And ultimately, who is culpable, who is responsible, who is guilty? The answer to that question is the sinner. John tells us this, and this is where it gets really, really interesting. He says, some of the authorities believed in him. Some of the authorities believed in him at verse 49. 
And at first glance, you would think, well, great. Some of the religious bigwigs said, I believe in Jesus. I'm going to sing just as I am. Give me the card. I'm going to fill it out, right? But don't be so quick. Some of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, true saving faith, as Martin Luther learned in Romans chapter 1, true saving faith is, is never ashamed of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. There is no distinction. For these religious leaders, faith meant mental assent alone. Let me decode that for you. Faith for these religious leaders meant, I'll sign the card and I'm pretty certain I'm in. And the fact is this, the crucial aspect of trust was missing altogether. There are two kinds of people in the world. Only two. There are not three. There are not four. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are the unbelievers and there are the believers. I want to have you turn with me as you consider unbelievers and believers to the book of Acts. Today in Veritas, we studied the whole book of Acts, all 28 chapters, just 50 minutes. We didn't even get close, right? But I want to have you turn with me to the end of the book of Acts and notice something that I hope will floor you and encourage you as well as you consider the unbelievers and the believers. In Acts chapter 28, verse 27, once again, the book of Acts, as we see in John chapter 12, recites from the book of Isaiah chapter 6. And you'll recognize this. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear And their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. I would ask once again, why do these people fail to believe? Is it them? Are they hardening their heart? Or is it God? And the answer is yes. But here's the amazing thing. As many of you are likely wondering, well, then what gives? If they're called to believe, if they're invited to believe, indeed, if they're commanded to believe, is there any hope that they'll ever believe? Notice in verse 28. And I'm pretty sure this is my favorite verse in the book of Acts. Because it is is painfully clear that apart from the work of the Spirit, that apart from a sovereign work of grace, that the sinner will never believe. His eyes and ears are closed to the truth of the gospel. He will never believe apart from sovereign grace. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. There may be someone here today. And you're hearing all that we're, we're exploring in John chapter 12. And you may be here today and say, yeah, pastor, that's me. My ears have been plugged up for 20 years. My ears have been plugged up for 60 years. 
My ears have been plugged. I'm, I'm 12 years old. My ears have been plugged up my whole life. My eyes are blinded to the tr- truth of the gospel. I realize that I am a slave to sin. Help! I want out! How do I do it? The answer is you don't. You don't. The Spirit of God will transform your hard heart into a soft heart, giving you the ability, the inclination, the desire to believe. And so for the unbeliever who's locked in a prison cell of unbelief, this is God's call to you. This is God's command to you. He says, you must believe in my son. It is both a command and an invitation. Unfortunately, the way that the gospel has been presented in recent years is it's only an invitation. And it is an invitation, but it's also a command. God is calling you. God is commanding you to trust his son. You say, but I've learned that apart from grace, I can't do it. Cry out for grace. Cry out for grace and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that God sent, as we've seen repeatedly in the book of John. God sent Jesus to to live the life that we could never live on our own. And he died the death that I deserve to die. He died the death that each of us deserve to die. How are you doing today? Better than I deserve. I deserve the white hot wrath of God. Thanks be to God that many of us here at Christ Fellowship have been delivered. We have been redeemed. We have been justified. We have been set free. Now the inclinations of our heart have turned from a hard heart to a soft heart. We have a new desire to love God. We have a new inclination to serve in the church of God and to reach people in our community. And so for followers of for followers of Jesus who have been freed yet still struggle with unbelief. I believe that includes all of us. We are to turn our affection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, the best definition I've ever heard of faith comes from the pen of John Piper, who says that faith is being satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ. So the next time you sin, ask yourself, am I satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ? And when you choose to commit that sin, you know the answer to the question is, no, right now I'm not satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ. And where do we go next? This is what every counselee hears that sits down with me. Run to the cross. But pastor, you understand, I've been doing this all my life. Run one more time. Run to the cross. Set the bar high and say this, by God's grace, I will never commit that sin again. And by God's grace, he will enable you to be victorious and by God's grace, the Lord Jesus Christ will stand in your defense, as First John 2 tells us. He will plead your case as an attorney with God the Father, and you will be forgiven. So my question today to believers is, are you satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ? What is preventing you from enjoying unhindered fellowship with God? This morning, as we approach the Lord's table, I want to take a few minutes of of silent reflection. For unbelievers, would you cry out to the living God, God, please give me grace. 
I want to stand with you for all eternity. Please forgive me of my sins. I repent of my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross and taking away my sins. For believers, ask the question, how am I failing to be satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ? And ask the Holy Spirit, like a, like a searchlight, to probe your heart and to show you where you are unsatisfied. And when he reveals it, and he will, The Holy Spirit is always faithful to convict the sins of the people of God. When he reveals it with that spotlight, your responsibility now is to what? Run to the cross. Turn to Christ to receive the forgiveness of your sins. And then we'll partake as Jason and the worship team leads us. So let's have a few minutes of silent reflection and I'll pray. Father, in the quietness of this moment, we are faced with this decision, this choice. What is our creed? What do we believe about the most important question, things in life? I pray for unbelievers today that they would uh, cry out for grace, that you would uh, change someone's heart, a stony heart. You would transform it into a soft heart, giving them the ability to believe Up to this point, their ears have been plugged up. Their eyes have been glazed over. Their will has been in one direction, that is to sin, to commit sin. Their feet have been on the path of evil. Their hands have committed evil. And God, today I pray that you do a work of grace in someone's heart, giving them a new inclination, a new desire to believe that you would save someone today. For the rest of us who are followers of Christ, I pray that you would pinpoint, Holy Spirit, uh, areas of unbelief, areas where we have failed to be satisfied with all that you are for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. pray that you'd be so good and, and kind. We remember from your word that it's the kindness of God that brings repentance. Would you be so kind to reveal those things to us? God, I pray that you transform your people. I pray that you'd help your people to walk in victory, that as a church family, that we would walk in victory, that the gospel would be at the very center of our creed. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We trust in him. We embrace his promises. Now, God, as we come to the table, we partake of the elements, recognizing that the bread represents the body of Jesus, that the The cup represents the blood of Jesus and asks that you would do a good work of grace in this moment of silence, that we would partake remembering the death of Jesus until he comes. Help us to be satisfied with all that you are for us in Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.